0: welcome to the art of medicine the program that explores the arts business and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine i'm dr andrew wilner and my guest today is dr edward halperin welcome dr halperin
1: thank you delighted to be here
0: i'm really delighted too because i was browsing one of my favorite journals the annals of internal medicine You know, in addition to being a neurologist, I'm a board certified internist and so I uh, tried desperately to keep up. And I saw this article about the intern strike in 1934 in Montreal and I thought, gee, what what is that doing there? And it resonated with me because in fact, I was a neurology resident in Montreal uh but not in 1934 but between 1985 and 1989 i did my residency and epilepsy fellowship there and i noticed that it was a very uh, timely topic so dr halpern please tell us what you do during the day and how it is that you came to write this article
1: i'm the chancellor and the chief executive officer of New York Medical College. New York Medical College was founded in 1860 and is a health sciences university just north of New York City. Since 2011, the college has been merged with the Turo College and university system. We have a medical school, a dental school, a nursing school, a graduate school and a health professions and I am by training a pediatric radiation oncologist take care of children with cancer who need radiation therapy, and I also teach the required first-year medical school course in the history of medicine. So that is most of what I do during the day. Uh, Your question as to how I came to write the article is starting in the 1980s, I began doing research and publishing articles on the history of racial, religious, and gender discrimination in medicine. In the... Mid-1980s, I drove around North Carolina when I was an assistant professor at Duke and interviewed doctors who sued to desegregate the hospitals in the Carolinas and also interviewed the hospital administrators who got sued. And that was my first history of medicine publication, the desegregation of hospitals and medical societies in North Carolina. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine. The project I was working on about two and a half years ago as I was trying to understand. Why out of the 80 medical schools in the United States in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, why there were 10 of them that ignored the anti Semitic and anti Roman Catholic admissions quotas in the United States, why did 15% of the medical schools not comply with the quota system approximately. And I was going through old manuscripts in an archives in a library in Manhattan. And I found a letter from Bernard Gimbel. Gimbel's department store, Macy's and Gimbel's, New Yorkers may remember. Bernard Gimbel was a very prominent, very wealthy businessman. And he was writing a letter saying, what happened to the guy who lost his job in the Montreal intern strike? Did Rabinovich ever get a new job? I want to know. Now, I'm supposed to know all about the history of racial, religious, and gender discrimination in medicine. I had never heard of a strike in Montreal by interns. I didn't know who Rabinovich was and why he had lost his job. And I didn't know why Bernard Gimbel was interested. So I continued on the project on the quota system, but I started investigating what was Mr. Gimbel interested in. And I quickly learned from looking at old newspapers that all the interns in Montreal had gone on strike in the French-speaking hospitals in 1934 to prevent a single Jewish intern from being hired. So I called the most important historian of graduate medical education in the United States, Kenneth Ludmer, who's written a wonderful book called Time to Heal, another book, Time to Learn about the history of medical education. I said, you're the greatest authority on GME history. Tell me all about the Montreal intern strike. Never heard of it. You're the big authority. You never heard of it. Never heard of it. I decided therefore as a side project, I should learn all about it. That is how I came to write the article.
0: Well, I think it's fascinating, particularly when you bring up what sounds to me like a long history of uh, institutional uh, bigotry, if not uh, racism, that you mentioned that there were anti-Semitic quotas in almost all of the medical schools, although some, some did not follow that policy, but it was normal to follow that policy. Am I hearing you correctly?
1: Absolutely. The medical schools and the dental schools in the United States at the end of World War I in the early 1920s instituted a rigid upper limit quota to prevent admission of Jews, Irish and Italian Roman Catholics, Blacks and women. The quota for Jews was called numerus clausus. It was first instituted at Harvard and Columbia in the United States and spread throughout the country. You will remember that this is an era in which about 60% of the applicants to medical school are Jewish, but the quota placed an upper cap of five to 15%. And this quota was enforced rigorously from the 1920s to the 1960s at most schools. And if this sounds vaguely familiar to you, it is because remember, that about 60% of the students at the most competitive high schools in the United States, public schools like Boston Public Latin, Stuyvesant High School in New York, the Bronx High School of Science are Asian Americans. But how come the Ivy League schools all seem to have between 15 and 20% Asian undergraduates? The 60% of the most competitive students in the high schools are Asian but 15, 20% of the students in the colleges are Asian. What is going on? Well, of course, there was a lawsuit recently asserting that there is a quota system at Harvard. Harvard won in the state courts, but it's under repeal. But the system of upper limit quotas was part and parcel of medical education, dental education, law schools, many undergraduate schools. And some people think it exists today for Asian applicants.
0: Right. So it's a little confusing. It sounds like the quotas were instituted and may be instituted now for the purpose of of increasing diversity, which most people say is a great thing. You know, we want a diverse undergraduate or diverse medical school uh, population, but it looks like that in the process of creating diversity, there's also a process of discrimination.
1: Well, doctor, as we would say in Brooklyn, let's not kid ourselves, okay? All of the self-righteous medical school deans in the 1930s and 40s who said that the reason for the quota system was that the doctor should represent the population. We can't have too many Jews as doctors. That quota system was only applied to Jews. If they really believed it, then why weren't the medical schools 50% women and eight to 12% black and significant percentages of Roman Catholics, the quota system was used to maximize the percentage of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males in medical schools, not to increase diversity. And in the present, the argument about diversity is extremely complicated, isn't it? If you say, we want people with the highest GPA and the highest MCAT to be admitted to medical school, because we want the most qualified people, but you can't get in because although your MCAT and GPA is high, there's a way you were born. That means there's no room for you. Then are we changing the rules but not telling people what the rules are? So um, yes, the goal is to achieve diversity in the medical school class and also to reward academic excellence. And in 2021, it is very complicated and is a competing valid argument. In the 1930s and 40s, it wasn't very complicated. It was a ruse for bigotry. Tell
0: us about this Montreal intern strike. What happened there? Uh,
1: There was a considerable amount of anti-immigration, anti-Anglophobe, and sorry, anti-English, and anti-British, and anti-Jewish, and anti-Protestant sentiment in Quebec. Starting in the 1920s, they referred to the British conquest of French Canada as the catastrophe, that they felt that they were to defend the royalist Roman Catholic tradition. They were very concerned about the increase in European immigration to Quebec, not Roman Catholic, not French speaking, and that included Jews. In 1934, the Hospital Notre Dame in in Montreal, could not hire enough interns to fill its number of desired interns. They hired French-speaking Roman Catholic interns, but several of them resigned before the start of the academic year, saying they could get more money elsewhere during the depression. So they hired the man who graduated first in his class from Université de Montréal, the French-speaking medical school. His name was Samuel Rabinovich. He spoke French. He went to a French speaking medical school, but he was Jewish. The hospital authorities received a petition from the French speaking Roman Catholic intern saying we will not serve as an intern with a Jew. He is to be fired. The board of trustees said he has a contract. We won't fire him. The internship year began. All of the French speaking Roman Catholic interns walked off their jobs. The strike quickly spread to all of the French-speaking Roman Catholic hospitals in Montreal. The only intern on duty was Samuel Rabinovich, running from bed to bed to take care of patients. As the strike progressed, it was discovered there was a urology fellow at Hotel Dieu, Avram Stillman, another Jew. An anonymous letter was received by that hospital saying, fire him. The Jews are trying to replace us. We will not be replaced. The strike could not be halted. Most of the French newspapers supported the strike. Leading prelates of the Roman Catholic Church supported the strike. Eventually to end the strike, Samuel Ravinovich publicly resigned, saying that he had taken an oath to provide medical care to those who needed it. And the only way to do so would be for him to resign. The hospital did not punish the strikers, they went back to work and Rabinovich was unemployed. Stillman mentor Oscar Mercier, the father of urology in Quebec covered for him and said, he's not really a resident, he's just an observer. And the nuns also protected Stillman, but not Rabinovich, he was fired. Rabinovich ended up as an intern at St. Louis University Hospital in St. Louis a Jesuit medical school. Uh, Dr. Rabinovich's children tell me that phone calls were made from the Archdiocese in Montreal to the Archdiocese in St. Louis to arrange a safe exit for Rabinovich. He finished his residency, came back to Montreal and practiced medicine in Montreal for about 75 years. He practiced till he was 100, close to 100, the oldest practicing physician in Canada. He died about 10 years ago.
0: It's an incredible story, and it just seems to resonate uh, so loudly with the present. Um, What did you think when you were discovering all this, while you're rummaging through these old documents?
1: If your listeners go to YouTube and listen to the demonstration four years ago in Charlottesville, unite the right everybody remembers the photographs of the angry looking young men with the torches screaming but actually listen to the youtube videos what they are chanting is you will not replace us the jews will not replace us you will not replace us what are they saying they are saying as an old stand long-standing chant of white supremacists that people in positions of economic and social hierarchy, white people, are gonna be replaced by people of color and that they have to defend themselves against being replaced. And to white supremacists, people of color include Jews. Jews are not white people, they are people of color to white supremacists. Um, So what was I thinking? Well, the strike in Montreal in 1934 was about, you will not replace us also. You cannot have a Jewish intern rather than a French-speaking Roman Catholic intern, even if you can't find any French-Roman-speaking Roman Catholic interns. Well, what was I thinking? I was thinking, you know, doctor, that sometimes history is linear. And we think that it goes in an upward trajectory. And sometimes history is circular. And we just repeat things. You know, it is said that Emerson says to Henry Thoreau, Henry, you've been at the Walden Pond. I gather you stopped reading the newspapers. And Thoreau says, yes, I've stopped reading the newspapers. Are you reading the newspapers again? Emerson says to Thoreau. Thoreau says, yes. What do you think about the newspapers, Henry? Emerson says. And Thoreau responds, I've noticed that all the verbs are the same, only the nouns are changing. Well, that's circular history, isn't it? Only the, only the nouns change, the verbs are always the same. You will not replace us. That's what I was thinking.
0: Well, you are the chancellor and CEO of New York Medical College. That sounds like a, a pretty high up position in the administrative world. Is there anything going on at that level to help uh, sort of normalize medical school admissions and residency training so that we can, uh, if not eliminate, that we can improve uh, these issues?
1: For medical school and dental school, we know an awful lot about what predicts for success in the basic science years. We don't know very much about what predicts for success in the clinical years. And we know that MCATs and GPAs are good for how you'll do in biochemistry and anatomy and on the written boards, but as far as your bedside manner, your empathy, we're not good at that. So what are we doing about that? Well, we're pilot testing the CASPER, a test of medical ethical reasoning for college students as a tool in admission. We are doing holistic reviews of applicants, not only to understand how their grades and standardized test scores are, but what kind of person they are. And we're one of the schools that have given up on the one 30-minute interview. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And why do you wanna be a doctor? And by the way, what do you think of the Red Sox this year, kid? Instead, we're doing the MMIs, multiple medical interviews or so-called mini-medical interviews of students going from station to station, reading a, st- a scenario and having to respond to it to see whether they can think on their feet and whether they actually read the newspaper and know what's going on in the world and, uh, and can deal with a diverse group of uh, patients. So we are a private medical college but some years we have the highest percentage of underrepresented minorities of any historically majority school in the united states and that's a conscious program of our admissions office
0: dr halpern this has been a, a fascinating uh, discussion and and we're just about out of time is there anything you'd like to add
1: well i mean perhaps your listeners would be interested in the project that I began with, how did I find Bernard Gimbel's letter? And that is, when there is prevailing bigotry, why don't some institutions comply? And that was the key question I've been looking at, that I've been working on this project for a very long time. Why did some schools ignore the quota system? Um, And I have found a couple of themes. They include schools that were located in cities where there was a highly diverse population able to exert political or economic pressure. They include schools that had a homeopathic history because in the 19th century, homeopaths were the intellectuals of America and they tended to support votes for women, freedom for the slaves and granting them the vote and homeopathy. So when they founded medical colleges, they often had an extremely liberal attitude. I mean, who was the the first medical school to have women and men in the lab together? Boston University. First medical school to have a Black department chair? Boston University. First medical school to have scholarships for Black students, That non-Black medical school? New York Medical College. Um, First medical school to have a Jewish dean? New York Medical College, BU and New York Medical College, as well as several other schools had a homeopathic history. Now homeopathy uh, didn't have any basis in science, but because of its cultural issues, it led to it. A third issue was uh, leadership. There were some leaders of American medical schools who just thought that bigotry was dumb and they weren't gonna have it. The president of the University of Illinois, uh, the dean of New York University Medical School. Uh, and, uh, and then also, you know, credit has to be given to the women's medical colleges, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, not only admitted women, but admitted Jewish women, saying you can't be bigoted. If, if we're against bigotry against women, we can't be bigoted because of religion. Um, and maybe there are lessons in that, you know, for today about understanding institutional dynamics. I mean, because the key question here is that doctors like to believe that they are scientists above the fray of the polchontological society. And that is not true. Medicine is as subjected to subject to social whims as anything else. And if you don't believe me, please explain to me the role that medicine took in desegregating hospitals organized medicine. Was the AMA a leader in desegregating hospitals? Was the AMA a leader in desegregating medical schools? Was the AMA a leader in saying that homosexuality was not a disease and homophobia was? No, no. These are all social trends that medicine responds to from external pressure. It's worth thinking about that big question as medicine continues to face challenges.
0: Well, Dr. Halperin, this has been very uh, stimulating and uh, thought-provoking. I will refer uh, listeners to your article in the Annals of Internal Medicine about the uh, intern strike in 1934 in Montreal. And it sounds like some publications uh, may be forthcoming on this topic as well. Is that possible?
1: Oh, if if you were to type my name into PubMed, you'd find articles like, the pornographic anatomy book, the portrayal of women in gross anatomy instruction, the desegregation of hospitals, the role of gender bias in standardized tests in medicine. So, there's a a bunch of articles that I have done, and also, well, there's more to come. You know, I mean, you know, the standard joke about people who write articles about medical history our ideas are ahead of our time. That's why we still have all the reprints. So uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty to read if anybody's interested. Uh, thank you for being interested in this work. Uh, when you do medical history, most people just think it's cute. Uh, they don't take it seriously. Thank you for taking it seriously.
0: Dr. Halpern. it's really been an, an honor to speak with you and thank you for joining me on the Art of Medicine.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: This program is hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on The Art of Medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The Art of Medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe.
1: www.andrewwilner.com